You don't want the collapse of civilization? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No, thanks. Welcome to episode 48 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. Welcome back, everyone. And I'm happy to announce that all three of us have the power of mRNA flowing through our bodies. It is true. I have joined the cult of vaccinated, and now I feel the power. (laughs) (laughs) You were a holdout for a little while there, Rory. I was a bit of a holdout. For yeah. not really any good reason, just uh, basic procrastination, I think. <laughs> but I hear you. I mean, the, I mean, with like, other than, you know, getting vaccinated, like in my day to day life, because of this pandemic, I've just been putting off tons of stuff. Just like, uh, <laughs> we're in a pandemic. Who cares? <laughs> I don't need yeah. to get that done. Yeah. So maybe some of that leached over into my uh thoughts about booking my vaccination and so that got kicked down the road a little bit which did end up costing me because I could not get a nice prompt appointment like the two of you I had to wait a few weeks I dangled a little carrot in front of you too as well I was like oh we can play video games again (laughs) it's true it's true I was gonna say that we just pestered you into doing it (laughs) a little bit of peer pressure a little bit of incentivizing and a little bit of my own intrinsic values together they got me there Mm -hmm. this is why we need to have a lottery because then people are more incentivized to go and get their vaccines oh totally I mean if there was was a lottery I would have been there prompt Well, I'm still pissed that we actually don't have a lottery. Like the in the U.S., everyone's getting prizes for getting <laughs> vaccinated. And what did I get? I didn't even get a sticker. I like no sticker. sticker. Yeah, I had to oh. ask for no. my sticker. It was not a given, Sherry. It was like, "Do you want a sticker?" Yes, I do. Type of sticker. <laughs> <laughs> I was not even given the sticker. I was just given the finger over there. Walk over there when you're done. <laughs> Wow. Oh, I got a sticker. I didn't ask for one. They wrote the time on it so that they knew what time I got my vaccine. Oh. Oh, well, they gave me a time when I'm supposed to be, like, uh, leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was on, like, a you know, those um, mailing label stickers? Like, it was that. Oh. It wasn't anything fancy. <laughs> I bet they ran out of stickers for the day, and they were like, well, you just don't get a sticker. I I feel gypped. I should have went and complained. <laughs> the only reason I got this vaccine was for the sticker. I'm not leaving until I get my sticker. <laughs> a friend of mine Turn told it to me, Karen. <laughs> a friend of mine told me to keep my sticker and put it in a scrapbook so that I will have it to show my children later. So I have kept my sticker. Oh. I'm considering putting a it idea. in a scrapbook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The evolution of my pandemic life. <laughs> this <laughs> is everything I did at home. <laughs> yeah, it's a very small book. <laughs> Didn't really do very much. <laughs> Just a Netflix logo and <laughs> maybe, you know, junk food. <laughs> you can yeah. put a mask in there too. Scrapbook your mask. Yes, a mask. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, but you know, Canada's doing really well. We are above 60% of our population that's vaccinated, which I'm very surprised. Oh, sorry, I should say vaccinated. We have our first dose, yes. 60%. Uh, 
Um, but we are about to beat Israel. Like we are literally uh, like in second place of all the major kind of countries. So we've already beaten the U.S. and we're on our way. <laughs> oh, awesome. Uh, such good news. Yeah, we really need it. <laughs> we need some good news and we need to get out of lockdown because I need a haircut. <laughs> I desperately, desperately need a haircut. But, you know... Things could be worse <laughs> in reality when you kind of think about it. You know, uh, what's what could be more worse than uh, a pandemic? I don't know. You know, maybe nuclear war. So, <laughs> but these, you know, some people out there are they like to be very prepared. They like to uh, when they think about all the potential disasters that could be happening, they're thinking about potential like nuclear destruction and there are some people in the world that are uh, the type of individuals that are concerned about things like that and are overly prepared to any situation whether it might be nuclear war a zombie apocalypse <laughs> whatever so um to, that's the topic for today we're going to be talking about preppers so shit Sherry, maybe you want to give us a little overview of the history of uh, preppers and uh, maybe some failed uh, <laughs> apocalypse as well. <laughs> this isn't a like comprehensive history, but um, maybe the top ten uh, failed doomed stays of our uh, our past. Um, so the first one is the 2012 Maya Apocalypse. Do you remember this one? Mm -hmm. I remember this one. This one kind of made it a little bit more mainstream than some other ones. There was uh, a movie, was... Sherry. There was a mainstream movie, 2012. <laughs> <laughs> because I the Mayans it. predicted it. It was good for <laughs> visual effects. It was quite a, quite a feast for the eyes. But go on. Sorry. <laughs> it didn't look very interesting to me, so I didn't watch it. And it's I also not. <laughs> I also, was I not also did not watch this it. idea. So December 21st, 2012 is when they predicted the world to end because it marked the end of the first great cycle of the Maya Long Count calendar. So this was a calendar that went through like 400 rotations or something like that. And uh, people sort of misinterpreted it to mean that it was the absolute end to the calendar and that we were going to die <laughs> on that date um, uh, because it was tracking time continuously from about 5,000 years previous. And so there were these doomsday predictions that came out of it because the calendar was ending. So people thought uh, Earth is going to collide with an imaginary planet called Nibiru, something I didn't hear about. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where this planet comes from, why it's colliding Wait, is, with Earth, say, I have is, no idea. Is it like invisible? Like oh, some that's... invisible planet? Like what? What is this? I now know what this means. I see. I found a list of doomsday scenarios, and Nibiru was the one that I didn't understand. I'm like, what's a Nibiru? I don't know what this is <laughs> talking about. <laughs> Other ones made sense, so like <laughs> comet, solar flare, EMP, nuclear war, tsunami, earth change, ice age, Nibiru. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, it still doesn't make sense, though. <laughs> let's, not, let's not get that confused. 
<laughs> it still does not make sense. Whatever <laughs> Nibiru, however it got here, it's going to collide with Earth. Uh, giant solar flares, which is something people still have a fear about. A planetary alignment that would cause massive tidal catastrophes. Lots of good movies based off tidal waves. Uh, and a realignment of Earth's axis. So that was oh, what the pole was shift. Happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Heard of that? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so what happened was nothing. But <laughs> um, a uh, modern day Noah's Ark was built by a man in China, and um, I took a quick look at the uh, news article about this guy. And he said, so I took all my savings and invested in the construction of this boat. When the time comes, everyone can take refuge in it. It wasn't a big boat. Um, I don't think everyone can take refuge in this boat, but that's not what he said. But uh, I personally, when I looked at it, said, I don't think this is a very big boat. (laughs) I don't think we're getting very far on it. And I don't think the animals are getting on it. So, um yeah, so so a man in China decided to build a new Noah's Ark. Wow. All of his savings. Poor man. How, All of his savings. How substantial were his savings? I have no idea, but like, you but know. But still, if it's all of your savings. Yeah. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> like, what else do you have left? Are we talking, like, millions? Or are we talking, like, obviously his retirement no. strained, but. It, it, it was not a big boat. So I don't think it was millions, but he might have built it from the ground up. I'm not sure. It's on dry land. uh, And it didn't look like there was any water anywhere nearby. So he may live there now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That may be his new address. Um, And also people were buying out survival kits. So that's sort of the the preparations that people took for this. um, this apocalypse that was supposed to happen based on a calendar from the Mayans. Yeah. I really don't think we could predict uh, an apocalypse, you know, 5,000 years in the future. Yeah, but, how, how would the Mayans even know, right? I mean, they were probably not concerned about the next 500 years. They were probably concerned about their day-to-day lives. They made a <laughs> calendar, and... Isn't it more likely that they just ran out of space with their calendar than they actually predicted the end of the world? I think so. At some point, they were like, oh, we've spent too much time on this calendar. Let's just stop at 400. Let's go a couple more rounds. 400, we're done, and we can move on to the next. Exactly. Because we have to, like, feed ourselves. We have to deal with whatever, malaria. Like, there are other concerns than extending the calendar. For sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the Mayan apocalypse that happened. And I remember that one. That one was a little bit mainstream. Like you said, there was a a movie on it. Um, The next one is somebody I have not heard of. His his name is Harold Camping. And he publicly predicted the end of the world as many as 12 times based on interpretations of biblical numerology. There is always some form of religion in these. Well, not always, but like there's very frequently a form of religion within these uh, doomsday predictions. I feel Um, like I've seen something about this guy before, like on a documentary of some sort. Is he one of those ones who's like renounce your material possessions to me because you will not need it post doomsday? 
Uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> when when was his him. last prediction? Okay, so in, in 1992, he published a book that was titled 1994 with a question mark, uh, which predicted the end of the world sometime in that year. And then um, his more high-profile high prediction was from May 21st, 2011. Uh, and he calculated that to be exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. And uh, so when that date came and went, he uh, said that his math was just wonky. And he <laughs> decided to push it back to October 21st, 2011. And then that date came and passed. And I think he just decided not to mention it again. So, <laughs> so he has been consistent. In being wrong every yes. single time. I, I did a quick bit of research just to confirm this is who I thought it was, and it is. Camping is <laughs> notorious for issuing a succession of failed predictions of dates of, for the end times, which temporarily gained him a global following and millions of dollars of donations. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. That's yeah. him. So he, he was able to dupe like a lot of people yep. in order to get like millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm what not were surprised. they paying for? Exactly. Well, like what? since he's religious, maybe he was saving souls. I'm not sure. Maybe with a collection plate of, you know, when you would pass around a collection plate. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Give, give me your offerings to guarantee your position in yeah. heaven. Yeah. First, first class ticket on the heaven highway kind of idea. But do we even know when the biblical flood was? I guess we would in terms of history. People have sort of decided on there was a big flood at this date, and so I we believe that's I feel the like there's flood. like a bunch of biblical scholars who have devoted a lot of energy to determining approximate dates for these supposed massive events like Noah's Ark and the flood and all that. But I'm not familiar with it personally. Yeah. So Harold decided he looked at like when he was alive, the years that he's alive, and which one was a significant date, and he decided <laughs> seven thousand years after the flood. Uh, is a significant date, and that is when the world will end, and it did not. So just, here we are. Just decided, eh? This one sounds good. It, it's not like <laughs> the angel was speaking through him or anything. Just yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Seven you might as well years. just roll a dice. <laughs> yeah. and, and twenty eleven. <laughs> so. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. So uh, a little bit arbitrary there. Uh, our next one is true way. And so this one, uh, there was a Taiwanese religious uh, leader named Han Ming Chen, um, who established Chen Tao, or True Way. Um, And it's a religious movement that um, blended elements of Christianity, Buddhism, UFO conspiracy theories, and Taiwanese folk religion. So he's essentially creating his own cult. Um, Mm Yeah. Yeah. And he preached that God would appear on U.S. television channel 18 on March 25th, uh, 1988, (laughs) to announce that he would descend to Earth the following week in a physical form identical to Chen, which is awesome. Uh, and so, so all all he needs to do is hijack a television station <laughs> because he looks like himself and then just command people to do whatever he wants. I mean, it's it's pretty um 
pretty great that the it's exactly looking like him. Like that's very <laughs> convenient for his uh, theory here. Um, and so the following year, he prophesied millions of devil spirits together with massive flooding would result in a mass extinction of the human population. Uh, and oh, you can be spared. So mm. there is a way to be spared from all of this. And he oh, knows thank it. Goodness. And you better believe it benefits him. So <laughs> you could buy your way aboard a spaceship uh, disguised as clouds sent to rescue them. <laughs> I okay. Love it. <laughs> how 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 much are tickets for this ride on the cloud? No idea, but far too much. <laughs> Any dollar amount is far too much for this. <laughs> yes. So if you want to be saved, you can from him because he is he is a uh, uh, god descended to Earth. You can purchase it to from him, and then on a spaceship disguised as a cloud, you can get out of here. Before all of that hits, it's so what's the creative. refund policy for this flight? Are <laughs> <laughs> mass required? <laughs> I don't know, uh, but I'm pretty sure he would have some very angry people on his hands. Uh, come the non-apocalypse that that uh, happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's so interesting that, like, as as you're talking about these different people, like it's the same scam being applied in different years in different locations but these scammers have figured out how to like convince people of of this mm-hmm. it's such mm-hmm. a creative packaging i mean i want to disguise myself as a cloud that sounds boss <laughs> <laughs> and and it's interesting like i think that they can sort of keep it up for a little while afterwards by sort of saying like oh I'm, my math was wrong or mm-hmm. um it's still coming don't worry and hope that maybe people will just forget and leave <laughs> and not ask for their money back i don't know <laughs> um yeah so next is haley's comet panic so mm-hmm. haley's comet is a comet that uh passes by earth approximately every 76 years um so In 1910, so this one happened in 1910, it was uh, coming pretty close uh, to Earth, so the nearness of it created this fear that it's going to destroy the planet, Um, either by a celestial collision or through the poisonous gases it was rumored to contain, Um, so says uh, the Britannica (laughs) website. Uh, I don't know what kind of poisonous gases... Um, comets have. I don't know if they actually do have poisonous gases, or this is like a nice. They have a lot of water. Oh yeah. Okay. Comets are icy bodies, so there's lots of water, and that's it's just basic basic compounds. Not nothing nothing crazy. I wonder why in 1910 they thought it contained poisonous gases. Maybe because like you see the tail. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they knew what comets really were. Fair. Um, they, they they knew they were like some astronomical body, but you know at that time no one sent probes to comets, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this panic resulted in a worldwide panic, um, and the media and newspapers kind of encouraged that panic a little bit. There was one newspaper headline that said, "Comet may kill all Earth life," says scientist. 
Um, <laughs> and so there was, and uh, it may not surprise you, there was a group in Oklahoma who tried to sacrifice a virgin to ward oh, off no. impending doom. Oh, no. Um, and they, and, uh, yeah, so that probably doesn't surprise you quite so much. Hmm. And, um, people started purchasing bottled air. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the Lorax. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The Lorax, uh, started maybe coming around to, and, and that, that would, is what inspired the Lorax to be. Uh, born in Dr. Seuss's brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so then the comet came and went, and there was no effect on the world, and people just had empty bottles uh, <laughs> in their possession. <laughs> and you would imagine, I mean, Haley Comet comes back over and over again in regular intervals. Nothing happened in the past, but why did people think that it would something different would occur this time around? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, I don't know. People just thought, oh, it's coming too close. And and I think maybe like 1910 is a good, maybe a good turning point for science of like, now we understand a bit more about space. I don't know. So we understand enough to be scared, but not enough to understand how safe we are. That kind of idea. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know what would get what would possess me to purchase bottled air. <laughs> Wait, what, couldn't you bottle it yourself and then stockpile it? <laughs> I mean, I, I assume you'd have to vacuum seal it, right? So you'd have to purchase certain vacuum sealing technologies in order to make sure your air doesn't get contaminated, right? No, I don't know. But like, just like regular mason jars, couldn't you just? Put it, like, just put a lid on a mason jar, seal it up, and that should be fine. Only only one breath per mason, mason jar. <laughs> yeah. Take a breath. Oh, no, grab another one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how you would survive off of uh, bottled air You would need either. a lot of mason jars. <laughs> I feel like the exertion of opening the jar and taking your brief inhalation of the of the clean air would be, like, burning more energy than... <laughs> then you would need to survive and keep doing that for every breath of air you take. I don't know how that logistically would work. I don't either, but it was going to get someone through and <laughs> people were purchasing. So, <laughs> uh, Oh, we got to love capitalism, right? Rory. <laughs> oh yeah. Never miss a chance to sell something to someone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next one is Millerism. So there is a religious leader named William Miller. Um, and so this one happened in 1831. He started preaching that the end of the world would occur with the second coming of Jesus Christ in 1843. Again, another Christian one here of the second coming of, of Jesus. And this guy had 100,000 followers who believed Ooh. they would be taken to heaven uh, when the second coming of Christ happened. And so when this date came and went in 1843, uh, Miller did another calculation and uh, decided that the world would actually end in uh, 1844. So he postponed mm. it a year. Adjust it a little uh, bit. Yeah, you just got to adjust your math. And um, one of his followers, Henry N. Emmons, wrote... 
I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Disappointment? I mean, (laughs) I would be glad. Mm -hmm. Why, Why would you be disappointed that the world did not end? That's the weirdest part about this whole the people who are wishing for the doomsday is, you know, isn't it a good thing if it doesn't happen? (laughs) Isn't it good to be wrong? But no, there's this disappointment. Like they've been let down. They're banking on this event. Yeah. So I've got a few more. Okay. Uh, Joanna Southcott. So at 42 years old, uh, she reported hearing voices that predicted future events uh, including the crop failures and famines of 1799 and 1800. Uh, and so she started publishing books and eventually developed a following of as many of, again, 100,000 followers. So in 1813, she announced that the next year she's going to give birth to the second Messiah, whose arrival would signal the last days of the earth, uh, despite being 64 years old. As she told her doc, and as she told her doctors, a virgin, she died mm. before a baby could be born. Yes, so at sixty-four, she expected to have a baby, but not any baby, a Jesus baby, a Jesus baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we have the prophet hen of Leeds. Oh, this one's a good one. You're gonna like this one. <laughs> <laughs> In 1806, so we're going, we're still back in the 1800s. There was um, a domesticated hen uh, in Leeds, England, and it laid eggs that were inscribed with the message "Christ is coming." No. Yep. <laughs> this is. I mean, I, this kind of gets a little, little awful here, but anyway, a lot of people started flocking to this um, to this hen um, and started to worry about the coming of Judgment Day. But uh, they discovered that the eggs were not actually uh, prophetic messages, but uh, actually the uh, writing on the eggs was written by the owner who uh, wrote in corrosive ink and then reinserted them into the hen to lay the eggs later. Oh, what a monster. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets really dark. But he definitely wanted people to keep coming to his farm. So you've got to keep laying those eggs. Yeah. That's animal cruelty. Yeah. Tell me this guy went up for charges for that. Like, I would really hope that he received some. I feel like back then. It was 1806, Rory. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? Back then, I I don't think that was at the top of people's minds when it came to legal offenses. I mean, it's a it's a weird one to to charge someone with, but when you boil it down to just animal cruelty, yeah, I mm-hmm. it makes me sad to think he might not have been punished. Yep, but another person who claims that they see Jesus in the toast that they just toasted, um, <laughs> or the eggs that the hen laid that they wrote on. <laughs> I'm okay with that. They're not hurting any animals when they see it in the toast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, then we have the Great Fire of London. Um, so this one deals with the Bible's number 666, um, the number of the beast. Um, <laughs> and uh, many Christians in the 17th century feared 
in Europe feared the end of the world in the year 1666. So again, we've got a 666 reference there from Christianity. Um, there was actually a great big fire that happened that year, lasted from September 2nd to September 5th, uh, and it destroyed a lot of the city, um, including about 86 parish churches and 13,000 houses. Uh, and so a lot of people saw it as a fulfillment of this prophecy that the world uh, would end in that year. Um, and although there was a lot of property damage, the death toll was about 10 people. So if that is the end of the world, you know, I'm kind of okay with that because that's not <laughs> millions of people dying. It's true. It's a low impact end of the world. Yes. Okay. And then, uh, the great flood, the next one's the great flood. I've got a couple more mm. and then and then we'll pass it over. But Johann Stoffler is a German mathematician and astrologer, and he predicted that great a great flood would cover the world on February 25th, 1524. So this is way, 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 way back. Um, and it uh, would happen because um, uh, all of the known planets would be in alignment under Pisces, which is a water sign. And so uh, there were a lot of these pamphlets that were handed out. Um, and um, and uh, Johan also built a an ark, a three-story ark. So again, mm. we've got another person building, taking another their arc. savings, <laughs> taking their savings and building an ark. Uh, and on the day, there was some light rain and no flooding. And then the crowds of people who um, were hoping to get a seat on the Ark began to riot, uh, and hundreds were killed. Oh. Um, and uh, Johann was stoned to death. <laughs> oh. oh! Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so that you know, ended pretty brutally. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> you know, all a... these... All this talk of arcs, it actually reminds me of a poem I read for English class once. It was called uh, The Stowaway by Julian Barnes. And in The Stowaway, one of the uh, occupants of the ark was uh, good enough to point out to us that you're not fitting the entire planet's animal and plant life on one vessel. So the ark was, in fact, a flotilla and not a single ship. So the next doomsday prepper who thinks they just need to build one ship, you've got to think bigger. You're going to need a fleet. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. pour all of your savings into building a massive fleet, <laughs> fleet of planet-saving ships. But now, mm-hmm. go on. <laughs> and the last one that I want to talk about, which I think is the one that you two will enjoy the most, is Y2K. Because that Yay. was in our millennial lifetimes. <laughs> and I really remember this one. This was when uh, we were going from 1999 to the year 2000, and they thought that all of the computers would crash mm-hmm. because they were computers were not programmed to have the year 2000 in the number. It was always programmed with 19 and then whatever year. No, and I was so, worried that my computer might not be able to play the games that I enjoyed for like a single day or so. And it really had me that worked would up. Be that would be the end of the world. It that truly would have. Tr- that truly is the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, for 14-year-old me, it would have felt like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, so people kind of freaked out. I remember, I remember that people started freaking out and um, there were some people who were prepping and those people were put on the news. Um, and uh, I guess it didn't really catch fire. All that fear from the media that they were trying to stoke didn't really catch fire. Because uh, the government was saying, like, you know, we've we've put everything in order. Don't worry about it. Um, but um, I guess the U.S. did spend about a hundred billion um, to fix this issue, and and it was legitimate for the systems, like a lot more legitimate than I think people realize. Hmm. But they just sort of fixed their systems, and and then we could survive, and, <laughs> and that was fine. But I don't think it would have been the the huge collapse that people were worried it was gonna happen um but there was a video store in upstate new york who tried to charge a customer ninety one thousand dollars two hundred fifty or ninety one thousand two hundred fifty dollars after their computers showed a rented movie was being returned a hundred years late <laughs> <laughs> so that was the extent of uh of, um, of the cataclysm, the cataclysm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if I I'm received sure. a bill like that, it would be the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like you would just blow up. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I think I would be looking to inject some common sense into that video store owner and say, <laughs> "Let's look at this movie's release date, and we'll start from there." Yes, but the computer <laughs> says no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is that is my history of uh failed doomsdays that never really happened. I'm sure there are more and probably funnier ones uh <laughs> than the ones I had that became a little bit morbid in there, but we still had still a little element of hilarity. <laughs> well, I think that we should move from there into some successful projects of doomsday funded shelters. Ella my my buddy Kenny I think Kenny has a couple good ones from Reddit, right? The yeah, uh, yeah. let's go to the Reddit one first because uh, uh, to me, um, what's interesting while uh, Sherry, you kind of brought up about these past uh, doomsday predictions. Uh, I basically there's a Reddit community of preppers, and there's uh, over uh, two thousand thirty five. Uh, sorry, uh, two hundred over two hundred thirty-five thousand members on this Reddit site, and they're they're just a community of preppers. So they talk about um, you know how to prep, basically you know how to prepare for any disasters. Uh, but I think what's interesting was I actually looked at uh, sorted their threads by kind of the most popular ones of all time. And kind of went through a few of them where it seems like the most popular ones tends to be when people are talking about uh, certain predictions. Uh, And, you know, some of them were pretty generic in terms of, um, you know, I I just have a gut feeling that something's about to, you know, dramatically happen, uh, whether it's because they're seeing, you know, all these protests happening, they're... Uh, the, there's the pandemic. Uh, a lot of them, especially uh, in the last year, uh, made a lot of predictions about how the world is going to collapse because of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So things like uh, our medical systems are under pressure. Um, we're going to have a food shortage. Everything's going to collapse. 
uh, and basically just warning the, their own community that you, you guys got to prep because our entire you know, infrastructure is just going to collapse. Now, all of these were posted well over a year ago. I don't know. Do you guys feel like society has <laughs> collapsed? <laughs> I certainly, I, I certainly do not. But I am super curious, and this is something I wanted to talk about a little bit, of, is how many people did go into lockdown over COVID-19 and, you know, retreat into their prepping bunkers versus how many of those same people became anti-maskers who just floated all regulations. Yeah, I, I don't know about that, but they, def- I mean, people did definitely go into their own lockdown. Uh, but I think what was also really interesting, uh, there was a one thread around uh, the toilet paper discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you all recall, uh, people were stockpiling toilet paper. Oh, and the, the Reddit community seemed to be very supportive of that because, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, they were thinking, like, toilet paper is just going to run out. <laughs> we're just going to run out of toilet paper. And that's why, you, you know, people shouldn't be making fun of them for stockpiling toilet paper. And they, you know, every Redditor should be out there <laughs> buying up toilet paper <laughs> when you can. And you also have to pretend like you are, uh, you're not a prepper. The one of the mm. key uh, themes of the Reddit site is about uh, making sure that everyone around you doesn't think you're a prepper, <laughs> even uh, though you are stockpiling. Because, you know, they will either judge you, which people obviously will, <laughs> if you are <laughs> buying up all the toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so it's just very interesting that even if you just look at a very short time scale, you know, in the last year or two because of the pandemic, like the type of conversations that are occurring with these preppers are very similar to the doomsday scenario where they're predicting, you know, massive collapse of society and toilet paper is going to run out. Food is going to run out. you got to just stockpile everything. And here we are today. We're on our way out of the pandemic, but I don't know. Toilet paper is still around. <laughs> food, is, food is more expensive, but food is still around. So... I think I it know. did I, make I, us really aware, though, of the food chain, like, especially as and, and like the chain of production as well, especially as we've got these um, computer chips that go into cars and PS5s and they became uh, shorted and uh, or we found a shortage of those. And then I don't know, I think people were just like worried because we have created this globalized world where we um transport things so far and and the means of production is just so warped now that yeah so i can understand why people get worried about the the food supply chain and things like that and especially like thinking about the suez canal issue that happened where one boat clogged up the canal for Mm -hmm. many days and then there were you know issues with getting things to different places and so I I get the fear, but I think I think that we have built a system that's good enough that it's not society ending, right? Yeah. Like none of these scenarios are not about to like completely destroy society, and you know we're going to be back into the stone age. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, I I also understand kind of the uh, this fear as well because in certain communities there have been you know dramatic. 
uh, events that have really tested our infrastructure and our ability to continue the way our way of living. So if you think back to the blackout of uh, 2003, when most of the northeast of North America was in a blackout, I mean, people obviously didn't have power and um you know there there were some fears fortunately it was in the summer so there wasn't any like issues around heating and things like that but if you think back um just this past year in texas when the power grid collapsed there that was in the winter and you know people died from hypothermia uh water pipelines were bursting because there wasn't uh, heating at home so lots of people kind of suffered uh the consequences of um that uh, infrastructure collapse mm-hmm. so there i mean people's concerns are legitimate because it could be could impact their lives but um i i don't think it goes to the extent of uh you know these localized events then ending society <laughs> that's a really but good maybe, point so i i don't know rory in terms of you know the psychology of this i think would be interesting yeah. to kind of uh dig into no, for sure. And uh, you actually got me thinking about, because I I kind of have two opinions on prepping, and I'm curious what you guys' opinions are. On the one hand, like you said, I, I do think it's a, a good idea and it has merit when people are trying to live sustainably. And I can understand the positive feelings they get when they gain a level of uh, self-sufficiency and the freedom that brings that they they don't feel tethered to a system that maybe they think is on the verge of collapse and i think preppers a lot of the time do get a bad rep in terms of they get conflated with hoarders when they do things like stockpile the toilet paper instead of you know building a sustainable ecosystem in their own localized habitat which i can see as a good thing the other side of my opinion is I think prepping for a disaster to ensure your single localized unit's survival rather than dealing with the world's issues in an interconnected way, because it does involve all of us and taking some social collective responsibility to address major issues. Take for example, climate change rather than prepping in a bunker and saying climate change is going to happen it's terrible, but I'll be okay because I've built an underground silo. Why not devote as many resources and as much energy as you can into addressing climate change through positive political solutions and collective action? It's kind of like an individualist versus a socialist approach to, you know, sometimes real, sometimes very fictional problems out there. I don't know. What are you guys general I mean, do you, do you feel like do you feel like, I mean, these preppers also take things to the extreme, like take the scenarios. I mean, going back to my scenario around like the toilet paper, I'll, I mean, I'll quote uh, a line from uh, a Reddit poster, um, but this was in re- reference to uh, the coronavirus. So, you know, your, I'll quote him, your country may be spared from the worst of the disease. You know, coronavirus may have a 3% death rate, but famine is 100%. Like the, the claim around, you know, the food shortage is, you know, it's going to be dramatic. It's going to, you know, pretty much uh, yeah. cause a food war. Things like, like it, it feels like they, they just want to like take it to the 
extreme for any of their kind of predictions. Yeah, there's actually, um, give me one second. Freud wrote about this um, in Psychoanalysis, which is, you know, not always the most worthy psychological discipline. But in this case, I found it fairly interesting. He calls it a... uh, a neurotic fear, with neurotic fear being a general condition of anxiety, a condition of free-floating fear, as it were, which is ready to attach itself to any appropriate idea to influence judgment, to give rise to expectations, in fact, to seize any opportunity to make itself felt. We call this condition expectant fear or anxious expectation. Persons who suffer from this sort of fear always prophesy the most terrible of all possibilities, interpret every coincidence as an ill omen, and ascribe a dreadful meaning to all uncertainty. Many persons who cannot be termed ill show this tendency to anticipate disaster, and we blame them for being over-anxious or pessimistic. That's from Freud in 1920. So, neurotic fear, and that definitely is what I would apply to a person who does have those really hyperbolic exaggerated doom and gloom predictions to often manageable social crises. Mm -hmm. And I mean, fortunately, uh, because of the invention of the internet, now people that have these fears can congregate (laughs) together (laughs) and also revel and share their fears with each other. Yes. And I'm sure they they reinforce each other and, and build each other up. And it seems absolutely certain, I'm sure, when your entire... Milu is telling you that this is real and true and you are acting appropriately. It, it even feels very similar to like the QAnon people because, um, uh, you know, some of the lines that they write on the red threads, uh, I'll, I'll quote again, some lines, you know, the public at large hates preppers. Like it, there's this like feeling that like other people don't understand them and mm-hmm. you know, they, they know the truth they know what's going on and they got to stick together and, you know, focus on preparing for whatever disaster that's about to happen, whatever the next prediction is. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely that outsider element. I wonder about the, like I, when I think about prepping, I really wonder about the waste involved with prepping Mm. just because, okay. So you're going to like, let's say you're you're not big into can canning your own food or whatever, but you're going to go to Costco. And I know at Costco, you can pay $6,000 US and get uh, two years for two people at 2,000 calories a person a day fed with dehydrated food. And this dehydrated food has a shelf life of 25 years. So nothing happens, nothing happens. You get to year 24 or maybe 23, and then you're stuck with all this dehydrated food that you're going to have to eat for the next two years. So you're only going to be eating dehydrated food for two years or you're going to throw it away. Right? (laughs) So there must be so like, if you... I don't know. There must be so much waste involved with this as well. If you're not actually, or if you're canning things all the time, they're going to be eating a lot of canned foods. So I don't yeah. know. It just no, feels I, kind of. I feel like if you time. were if you were a good prepper, you would be consistently eating your dehydrated food yeah. and just restocking <laughs> over time. No, I. <laughs> like you're, you have a it, you have a fixed inventory, and you're just you know swapping out eating and then adding more. I totally agree with that, Kenny, that, you know, a proper prepper would have it as like a cycle where they're cycling through their materials, whereas 
the more contemptuous hoarding prepper is just stockpiling rooms and rooms and creating a real space crisis as well as a consumption and waste crisis, as you were alluding to, Sherry. Yeah, I, I'm just very curious around just the decision making and how they came to the point of I need to stockpile for five years because you know, things are gonna things are gonna be bad in the next five years and and when five years pass and nothing bad happens <laughs> um, there's this like re-justification about oh no I, I gotta I gotta keep this going because uh, this new crisis is, that I learned about is coming up so I still have to continue to uh, prep for the next five years yeah yeah, it's it's really interesting the way they they recalibrate their assessments of the crisis and keep it relevant at all times to themselves. I guess the best crisis for them is one that could always happen but never happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, I I have another sense for me in terms of wow, there's gonna be an egg on my face when one day <laughs> when they're right, <laughs> right. When you're among the starving masses who are who are crawling to their yeah. doorstep, pleading for aid. Yeah. Do they call but that it's, fear it's, of missing out? <laughs> yeah, FOMO. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's about probability as well, right? I mean, what is what are the probabilities of some like uh, global natural disaster? It's possible. Um, but uh, I don't know if I would dedicate my entire life to, and also my savings into, mm -hmm. you know, um, stockpiling. It's also a, a question of how you want to address a global calamity if it did happen, whether you want to just be seclusionist and hide in your bunker or whether you want to face it with the rest of us starving masses and find the best solution that we all can together. So I don't know. From what I learned about uh, The Walking Dead, it's better to <laughs> stick with your own <laughs> Corjet TV show. I have interesting notes on that as well. But uh, I figure, first off, I'm going to start with a very generalized definition. Is Preppers are people who anticipate and actively attempt to adapt for what they see as probable or inevitable impending conditions of calamity, ranging from low-level crises to extinction-level events where food and basic utilities may be unavailable, government assistance may be non-existent, and survivors have to individually sustain their own survival. I don't know, kind of suggests to me that part of the prepper mentality is like having some kind of disdain or depression for within status quo society, that they, they have a real crisis of confidence in the systems that we have today and their ability to maintain the type of lifestyle that they enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this connection between their lack of confidence in, for example, the government mm -hmm. um, to be able to help them in any crisis. So they need to take it on themselves. Um, and, it, you know, if, through the Reddit threads, um, a few times uh, people will mention... Uh, about the point about the government's not going to help you. You know, mm -hmm. the, you, know you you got to do it yourself. There's there's no help from anyone else. Yeah, and I actually, uh, I did a little bit of my own historical research, Sherry. You'd be proud. 
And I looked up uh, what was sometimes referred to as the first doom boom, because I was looking at it from a kind of marketing approach. And that was when uh, there was the nationally televised speech from uh, John F. Kennedy in 1961, where he told the American people that they had a sobering responsibility to recognize the possibilities of nuclear war. And of course, this resulted in the, the shelter boom, where everybody felt they needed their own private fallout shelter in their backyard and... They needed to stockpile that with supplies. So, uh, speaking about kind of the uh, sh- kind of these nuclear shelters, um, do you guys know how much it costs for a luxury survival shelter? I don't, but I was super curious about it when I read that so many people were investing in them. In a luxury shelter, I'm gonna say um, probably something like a hundred million. Okay. So, uh, I, I have some good news for you, Sherry. <laughs> I can give you a discount. I can give you a discount. Okay. Okay. It, so, a luxury uh, survival bunker uh, in Kansas that's 200 feet underground that was a converted missile silo will cost anywhere between $1.5 million and $4.5 Five million dollars. Mm. There is a two thousand five hundred dollar monthly fee, though, on top of that for maintenance, obviously. But uh, but uh, yeah, I mean that's a that's a big discount. I mean, you just <laughs> yeah. need a few million dollars, you can get your own underground bunker. Um, so there's this company called Survival Condo, and they convert nuclear silos into bomb shelters, livable bomb shelters. Um, that can withstand a 10 kiloton nuclear blast, which is similar to the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, and they sell these to millionaires as you know a place to shelter in case of disasters. Um, it should be noted that actually most banks uh, will not finance it, so you can't take <laughs> out a mortgage on it <laughs> because banks do not believe in bomb shelters. Um, <laughs> But uh, if you were a millionaire, you could pay for it in cash, great. Uh, you, you would have enough food and water to survive there for five years. Uh, the walls are about 2.5 to 9 feet thick, powered by diesel generators. There's wind turbines. Uh, there's hydroponics and aquaculture uh, in the facility as well. Um, and there's a uh, gym and also an indoor saltwater pool oh so very fantastic living um and only there's for also 1.5 or 1.5 mil that's yeah. shocking but i guess like in the u.s they have such low housing prices especially if you're looking at where nevada you said or uh it's in kansas it's kansas, in the middle of nowhere of those, so like yeah, yeah nowhere places yeah yeah, yeah. so the uh there are 15 floors, so uh, one, you know, a few floors are dedicated to infrastructure, uh, but they do have a rock climbing wall, classroom, library. Uh, they have windows in quotation, like so. Windows are basically just it's LED panels <laughs> where it'll show you <laughs> scenery, um, and they can house approximately 75 people. So they. I, I do have an interesting question for you guys. Mm. Um, so this is a bomb shelter. There's, you can have a maximum of, of 75 people 
Can you guess why they do not have any toilet paper in this facility? Oh, no. Um, they're all using bidets. <laughs> they are, they are using bidets, but... They're not connected but, to the no, sewage but system. But do you know... Yeah. So, uh, the reason... The reason why, actually, the reason why they don't have toilet paper is basically more about space. Because if they needed to house enough toilet paper for 75 people for five years, it would take up an entire floor of the facility. <laughs> <laughs> and they do not have enough space for toilet paper. So uh, it's all a bidet system. So. <laughs> oh, so, goodness. Anyway, so if you have enough money, you could have yourself a wonderful luxury bomb shelter and survive for five years <laughs> living underground. Yeah. And the reason why is that it's enough time for uh, the nuclear winter to kind of, you know, uh, ease out, ease off of uh, uh, um, after a you know, nuclear war. So then you can reemerge and rebuild society in your own image. Exactly, exactly. Even though areas might be contaminated, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. That would be Uh, a tough one. You'd have to live nearby, because if a nuclear, you know, strike or whatever was going to happen, and you didn't live nearby this bomb shelter, then you're kind of like, okay, now I have to get to the bomb shelter before I get killed by the nuclear blast. So I don't know how practical this location is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but maybe, maybe I mean, some you might have some early warnings, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if if well, some country declared war, you yeah. could, I don't know, pack your family up and drive them. Think back to like a Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, it got down. They had like a doomsday clock because it was a, within minutes of a potential strike yeah. so there is some warning yeah. for these things as, as things escalate maybe you can start moving your family yeah uh, to the shelter <laughs> it's time to start working within the shelter rather than without yeah uh, listen a good prepper would know and be ahead of this that's right <laughs> so they 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 would point. already ha- they actually would have already sold off all their property and started living in the shelter <laughs> way before <laughs> anything before that anything bomb even got happened thought of being dropped oh my goodness i mean that's a good point something else that i i wanted to bring up to you guys it was uh another article but before i get to the article i want to connect this to the previous kennedy doomsday statement is that there was a group that came out called uh, the minutemen and the minutemen were an anti-communist organization that promoted preparation for guerrilla warfare inside america by training in survival skills hunting marksmanship and by working towards self-sufficiency from government infrastructure. So when Kennedy made his announcement, this group sprang up in the wake of that. This was the seed for a related social movement we now call survivalism. Now the thread of this that I want to connect is to another article that I read by someone named... Oh, where are you now? Casey Ryan Kelly, who said that... uh, Doomsday preppers and their rituals are actually, they're making hegemonic masculinity a necessity for survival. So they're taking male performance of hegemonic masculinity and saying that that is the essence of disaster preparedness, which manly skills appear necessary for collective survival. 
So what do you, before I get into it, what do you guys think of that idea that there is this connection to hegemonic masculine values and doomsday prepping, especially the militarized side of it, where everybody feels they need to be trained in the use of assault weapons to defend their pile of canned air? I never understood the weapon part of all of this that I've seen sort of come up in my research of you have to have a weapon to protect yourself. Um, should there be, you know, this, this collapse of society? I don't know. I think that weapons have always been, um, glued together with this machismo and toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity and, yeah, and and protecting the people who can't protect themselves, the women folk because yes. they can't protect themselves. There's a, there's tons of like toxic masculinity and exactly from that. This. Here's yeah. a a prime example. There was this individual named Martin Colville who considers himself a warrior in head to toe military camouflage. This is the picture they're describing of him. Automatic rifle at his side. Martin tells National Geographic camera crew who were there filming him. My name is Martin, which means warrior or warlike individual. I try to fight for what's right. I don't like bullies. My greatest fear upon a total economic societal collapse is that I won't be able to protect my wife. And so, yeah. her, her, her virtue. Okay. Her, yes. You know. <laughs> her helplessness, her dependency on great masculine warrior Martin. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he looks like, but I'm just picturing some guy in camo, yep. camo hat, maybe, you know, a little rough around the face, <laughs> <laughs> a little messy. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm picturing him also having some problems with personal hygiene, but these are my biases. <laughs> I can, intruding. <laughs> I can already, I can already smell it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so according to uh, the author... Uh, Casey Ryan Kelly, apocalyptic performances engender the hypermasculine ethos of contemporary doomsday television. So we're referring to the programs like Doomsday Preppers, Doomsday Castle, Apocalypse Preppers, Meet the Preppers. There's a surprising number of reality TV shows around prepping. I was pretty shocked. But they all seem to feature predominantly white men, such as Martin, And they're given this theatrical space where they perform their feelings of rage and victimhood and they deliver their monologues about the collapse of society and they they model their armaments and they rehearse their paramilitary battles with their post-apocalyptic marauders that they're imagining. And they exhibit all this masculine know-how that they don't really have a place for in normal day-to-day society. It's like they want to play soldiers, but they're not really soldiers. (laughs) Exactly. It it feels like it's like just honestly a reflection of themselves and maybe their insecurities. It's just very... Yeah, 100%. And it's like this overarching lesson of all the doomsday programming is that even though the future may be, who knows, completely unpredictable, that these traits of aggression and self-reliance and being stoic and competitive they're going to remain necessary no matter what in this uncertain future i think yeah yeah, and he wants to remain necessary as well or these people these men who are perpetuating this want to remain necessary they want to be important to the women Mm -hmm. in their lives and Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. around them yeah yeah it's totally it really is sounds it really does sound like it's a reflection of kind of their own 
thinking, right? It's yeah. They 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 don't feel like they are valuable without these guns, without this preparation. Yeah, and so you give them this this theater to perform that, which is a doomsday scenario, and all of a sudden these things that feel increasingly irrelevant in day-to-day life, they're suddenly super relevant again in their minds. Because the self-made or pre-industrial civilized man is needed. So yeah, I, I thought that was a really neat connection of the hegemonic masculine link to doomsday prepping or the negative side of doomsday prepping. The ones that we have a bias against, the ones who are toting their weapons and their camo. But I also found it really interesting that, you know, as I was thinking about it, I remember that uh, National Geographic's slogan that they've claimed to hold since 1888 was inspiring people to care about the planet. But yet their most popular programming is one that simulates planetary destruction and gives a stage to these eccentric individuals and their their lifestyles built around preparing for an apocalypse where they don't care about the planet or anyone else outside of their compound that they've insured against disaster. So what happened to you, National Geographic? <laughs> they sold out. <laughs> It's like the History Channel. Yeah, <laughs> they don't, they don't, they don't play anything about history anymore. <laughs> it's like they're, well, they're catering to the the worst of the audience, I guess. It's it's entertainment. Like it's turning to like, like that's why people like disaster movies, right? <laughs> it's it's now turned into just entertainment. Yeah. What is it about post-apocalypse disaster that's so appealing? Well, I thought about that question too. Because I was trying to answer why people have this desire to see that reset button hit, why they want the apocalypse right now, as opposed to, you know, just being prepared, being self-sustaining and being happy with that, happy with the knowledge of that. No, they seem to want the disaster. And one explanation for it, I think this comes from Mills, is he said that uh, dread is a dialectical sense of foreboding about an ambiguous object, and we wish to see it manifest because the possibility of its manifest has the consequence of a possibility of freedom. So in some way, in some sense, the disaster actually happening is liberatory and freeing to people who are preoccupied with this anticipation of the disaster. Or freeing from these systems that we've built that really imprison people and marginalize and oppress people. Like, I could see that freedom as well. Because when I think, like, I love the apocalypse movies. Like, I love zombie movies. Um, Huge zombie fan. And I like to watch or, or consider the idea of, like, what would humanity become if we were stripped away from everything that we... <laughs> sort of held dear all these systems and uh, um you know structures that we have built um in our society uh upon the backs of you know people who've been marginalized and oppressed and like if we stripped all of that away what would happen to society it's sort of a an exercise in in you know looking at the psychology of of human beings yeah. um yeah so there is is there is an essential freedom to you know, this idea that this apocalypse is going to happen and we can be free from from all of these shackles that bind us. 
yeah, with society being as imperfect as it is, I, I totally get that, that it's very liberating to imagine kind of a utopia or of a social reordering where a lot of the crappier things like homophobia and whatnot are shed and cast aside because they don't matter anymore in whatever post-apocalyptic world we're looking at. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny would rather go I, up than I, down. <laughs> no, thanks. I want to be tied into TikTok. TikTok will... <laughs> I want to be hooked on it. <laughs> you don't want the collapse of civilization? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> but the real question, Kenny, is do you want to be prepared for it? What would it take mm-hmm. to make each of us a prepper? How threatened do we feel? So, well, I, I think actually more importantly, I think we should acknowledge that, you know, things can happen, right? You know, in a few, I can't remember what it was a few years ago, you know, we had wildfires. Mm-hmm. It felt like a few years and ago, drought, probably a couple of years drought ago. And wildfire right. being connected. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, disasters and unpredictable events do potentially happen, uh, which is why the Canadian government has a dedicated website on how to get prepared for any kind of emergencies. So they have a website. Uh, it'll be in the, in the show notes, but uh, they walk you through on the recommended items that you actually should be stockpiling. Um, so things include uh, you should have some water, like either bottled water, about two liters per person per day, depending on how many days you think you want to be prepared for. Uh, food that can't spoil, so some canned food, dry goods. Uh, you need a can opener, manual can opener, uh, a wind-up or battery-powered flashlight, a battery-powered radio, first aid kit, um, maybe extra keys for uh, your house or car. You need some cash. You need important documents like ID, insurance, bank records, and you also need to have an emergency plan. So you need to know you, you know your exit routes out of your neighborhood. Uh, you need to have contact people outside of your, your city. So those are the bare minimum from the government of Canada on what you should have at home in case something were to happen. Um, in general, you need to have enough like supplies for about three days, uh, which is what the government will commit to in terms of rescuing anyone <laughs> uh, they will do it within a three-day period according to them so <laughs> or they will give up after three days <laughs> yeah who's gonna know <laughs> you're not gonna be alive <laughs> gave you our three days and we'll move on <laughs> uh, those sound like fairly reasonable preparations though ones that i I think you would find a general consensus in the population that they'd say, yeah, that, that'd be good to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, there's some sensible things that you should have anyways, because you, you never know. So, um, so I, I feel like that should be at a minimum what everyone should be doing. We should have at least some, <laughs> some supplies. But I don't need a $20 million bunker underground. No, I, I, I don't think that's necessary for most people. Simulated. Do you personally, though, think that we do need these supplies? Like, do you think something would happen that, you know, having a three-day supply of food 
that we don't already have but in our pantry. I feel, or... But I think we most people already have most of that, yeah. right? I mean, you think about if, if I were to do an inventory of my canned goods, I can probably survive for three days. Yeah. I shop <laughs> on, once a week. On what I have. So every week I'm preparing for seven days, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are the government guidelines, right? The government's trying to tell you this is the minimum that you kind of need. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Because you need to be self-sufficient for three days before the government will come and save you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's, it's going to be uh, geographically, it could be more relevant in some places than others. I mean, think what happened to Haiti, crisis that they endured for, I don't even know how long they were in a state of emergency. So, anyways, that's... That's my uh, PSA for today. <laughs> I appreciate it. it. It makes me feel better about the limited prepping that I do do. Do you do any prepping, Rory? Grocery shopping. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a first aid kit? <laughs> I actually do not have a first aid kit, but I do have a few first aid essentials, such as bandages and peroxide. And... Yeah, I think that's all you really need. I, I, I think when they say first aid kit, it's like, the basic stuff yeah. is not what you need. I don't know, full trauma kit yeah. <laughs> for... But I, you know, I don't have, whatever. like, the skills to suture myself or anything or the materials to do that. So if I did need stitches, I would still be looking for help elsewhere. I... I'm sure your own survival instincts will pop in and, like, I'm, I'm going to just need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a first aid kit. I think I should get a first aid kit. I have, like, Band-Aids and stuff sort of scattered around the house. Uh, but I, th- I do think that a battery-powered radio would be good and the battery-powered flashlight. Especially mm-hmm. thinking back, like, in my lifetime, what I have encountered is, like, power outages. Yeah. Um, tornadoes, things like that. So uh, you would probably want it for those reasons. Yeah, so it may be something I will invest in in the future. We'll see how... Uh, how pri- I prioritize that uh, <laughs> need there. <laughs> oh no, you're, you're slow. This this is a gateway gateway it's conversation. True. It's a slippery slope, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're gonna start talking to Allie about. Oh, we really should get like some materials prepared, and the next thing you know, in our next conversation. You're going to have stockpiles of canned food and <laughs> you're already investigating, you know, how to build a deeper basement. <laughs> Grocery cart absolutely full of toilet paper. <laughs> yep. The next, the next podcast we do, I will, behind me, you'll be able to see the rack of guns that I have procured. And um, this, this is how it starts. This is how it starts. Shelves of canned goods. <laughs> yeah. So get Get prepared, but not maybe not too crazy. And next time you check back in with us, we'll see how many supplies we've purchased. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you on the other side of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone for themselves. <laughs> right. Okay, so thanks for listening. See you guys later. Bye. Bye. Bye.